Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8 this morning. We want to turn to that. For those listening in the online, this is the 22nd of February 2015. I've just got to find this on my iPad now. You know, we saw at the end of last week that Jesus was talking about, you know, asking and seeking and knocking about prayer. How we should continue to ask, we should continue to seek and we should continue to knock. And sometimes we've got to be careful that we're no knocking at a brick wall, that we're always knocking at a door. You know, there's a door there to be opened for us. And he also spoke about the narrow and the wide gates and the trees and its fruit and the wise and the foolish, foolish builders. And really at the end of the day, you know, he said that not everyone that comes to me in that day and calls me Lord will, will enter into the kingdom of God. Now remember the audience he's speaking to here. This is a Jewish audience, basically. There are Gentiles amongst them, but this is a Jewish audience. And this would be, a, this would be a, an astonishment to the Jews that here was a rabbi telling them that some of them might not be going to the kingdom of God because they considered because they were Jews God's chosen people that there, there was a special dispensation for them and there isn't they can only come through Jesus and that's basically what he was trying to tell them there'll be many and, and it echoes down to our time even now that there'll be many come in his name who will perform wondrous signs and miracles and, and prophesy and all the rest of it but they're false prophets. They never actually knew Jesus. And now as we get to chapter 8 here, we're going to see Jesus taking all that he's spoken about in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, all the Beatitudes, all the things about murder, all the things about lust and all the rest, of it, all of these things that, that trouble a man, all of these things that, that, that I suppose destroy a man's soul in some measure. He's going to now put his words into action. And in some measure that's really what we have to do. What he said to the wise and foolish builder. The, the wise builder was like a man who heard my words and did something with them. Where the foolish builder was someone who heard my words and did nothing with them. So we've got to be the doers of the word. And Jesus now steps out here in chapter 8 and, and proves that he is a doer of the word. That he's not just a, a voice only. That he has that, that power of God within him. That God-given spirit within him and so at chapter 8 we find that when Jesus came down from the mountainside at verse 1 large crowds followed him now some of your translations might say a multitude followed him and it probably was a multitude when Matthew was speaking earlier in these chapters about disciples and about people listening to uh, the sermons of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus he used the word and I, I believe quite loosely the whole multitude he would probably have considered to be in some measure disciples, followers of Jesus because they were there on the mountainside with him. So it wasn't just the sort of 11, 12 disciples. In fact, I don't think they were all chosen at this point in time. Uh, indeed, at this point in time, probably in the, the Sermon on the Mount, that I don't even know that Matthew was a disciple at this point in time. He was just, he, he wrote this up afterwards. A large crowd... People desperate to know more. They said at the end of chapter 7 that when the people heard what Jesus said they were astonished about what he spoke about. This was something they'd never heard before. 
This was something that encouraged their hearts, that gave them a, a purpose in life, that, that said to them, you know, this is for us. It's not just for the scribes and the Pharisees. We don't have to be people that are, are nailed down by the law. We can, have, we can observe the law and we can fulfill the law because we believe in Jesus. The timeline here is slightly different for the other Gospels. Matthew seems to arrange these things by themes rather than by actual chronology timelines. If you look in, I think it's Luke's Gospel, you'll find that there's maybe one or two things about this situation that are back to front or roundabout. But, you know, people say to me, but that's surely, that's surely the Bible uh, tripping itself up there. And I say, well, no, go and ask a policeman. Go and ask a policeman if he's got six witnesses that witnessed a certain incident. And they, all the witnesses say exactly the same thing. It's very rare. In fact, police will tell you that witnesses to incidents are notoriously wrong. They, they tell them what they think they saw rather than what they actually saw. And it can become a real problem for the police trying to untangle all the sort of threads. So the fact that this, the way that Matthew writes it and the way that Luke writes it, remember that Matthew may well have been here. He may well not have been here at this point in time, but he may well have been there. Luke certainly wasn't there at this point in time. Luke came along. Luke was a Gentile believer who came along much later and was a disciple of Jesus, but not one of the original 12. So timelines and chronology, don't let people trip you up with them. It's just, to me, it makes it more real, the fact that the two stories sort of don't tie in properly with each other because it's two witnesses looking at it from different points of view. So, Jesus came down the mountain and a large multitude came with him. And a man at verse 2 with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now this event was witnessed by thousands. There were obviously thousands on the mountain with Jesus. A good mixture, probably mainly Jews, but certainly there would be some Gentiles in amongst them. And this man, a man with leprosy, came and knelt before him and said, If you are willing, you can make me clean, Lord. Now... I don't know, you've probably been reading your Bible, etc. You'll know that leprosy was one of these diseases that people were terrified of. So when a leper turned up, when there were thousands of people here, I can imagine there'd be panic in the ranks. You know, they've been told all of these years that, you know, you can't go near lepers. Indeed, the rules were, the man-made rules were that if, I, if you turned a corner on a street and there was a leper there, you couldn't go within six feet of him. And if the wind was blown for his direction, you couldn't go within a hundred feet of him. That's maybe just to do with the smell of him right enough. But because they, weren't, they, they, they were not looked after. I mean, they were cast out of their, out of their, uh, their communities. Leprosy was, leprosy was considered in some measure a curse for God. And only God could heal it. That's why it was one of the great messianic signs. One of the great messianic, the messianic signs were that the blind could see, the lame could walk, and the leper would be healed. And that, you'll find that in the Old Testament as well. And these three signs that, that Jesus performed, because nobody, no, well, nobody expected leprosy to be a healable disease. And notice that this man doesn't come and ask to be healed. He asks to be clean. And then the saying says there that in the Jewish tradition and certainly in the church tradition as we read scripture is that leprosy was related to sin. 
that leprosy was a, a, an outworking of the sin in your life. It's this old chestnut, uh, you know, you're sick because of sin in your life, which is a, which is a nonsense. You're sick because there's sin in the world. Um, and, that's, and it was brought in right at the gates of Eden. But here was this man, this leper, and you can just imagine people, you know, they'd be throwing themselves over dikes and everything, trying to get out of the road of this guy. He certainly wouldn't have any options, uh, any problems about getting to Jesus, because the path would just open up in front of him, you know. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, because they had literally had to carry a bell with them, leper, and cry the name. And of course, as soon as people hear that, they're out of the way. But he came, and he called Jesus Lord. And in the Greek, that word is kurios, which means a God above gods. If you translated it into the Hebrew, it would literally mean Yahweh. He knew who it was he was approaching. And in some measure, some of the Jews who were gathered around may not have been happy about the way they addressed Jesus, the words that he used to approach him. But this man came worshipping Jesus. He came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's strange that this man would come to Jesus because there wasn't a religious leader in Judea and Samaria and all the Galilee at this point in time who would have been anywhere near a leper. Indeed, many of the rabbis would boast about how badly they had treated the lepers. Josephus, the historian, tells us that, that some rabbis boasted that when they saw a leper come and they picked up stones and threw stones at them until they went away. Another rabbi had boasted of the fact that when he had learned that a leper had walked down this street, he wouldn't even buy an egg in that street. Uh, you know, people, the, the people's idea of this disease was, was dreadful. And the disease was dreadful. I mean, it was a, it was a disease that, that started off with you lost your sort of feeling in one part of your body. But that was only the outworking of it. It had already taken captive in the inside. It had already started its destructive work inside. When it actually started to appear on the outside, it was way too late. You were, you were pretty well gone by then. We often talk about it as being a skin disease, but the skin, the skin side of it was only the outworking of what was already dis been destroyed in the inside. And that was why they looked upon it as being related to sin. Because the outworking of sin is often only the final result of what's actually happening in a man's soul and a man's heart. So, you know, they would lose, they would lose the, the feeling in their hands or their feet or even the, their, their face, you know, they're starting to... And then ulcerations and bleaching would start in the skin as the skin died. And, and it disfigured terribly. Their noses would fall off and eventually pieces of their limbs would fall off. A leper... In the days of Jesus could literally put his hand in a fire and not feel it. Such was the, such was the, the degradation of his nervous system. And in some measure, you know, it leans back to sin as well. You know, we, 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 we get accustomed to sin. You know, we can put our hand in the fire and not even feel it. You know, it tells us that our consciences are like, a, like seared with a hot iron. I don't know whether you've ever seared yourself with a hot iron when I do the ironing and that you know it's just <clears throat> it's just even when I've got three or four sears she'll not take it off me you know. but anyway if you've ever burned yourself 
uh, fairly seriously. You can literally take a pin. Once it's healed, you can take a pin and stick it and you don't feel anything because it's dead. And eventually your skin will grow in underneath it and the flesh will grow in and you'll get back to normal. But these people didn't come back to normal. It was a terrible thing. And people at that point in time, and Jesus spoke into their, into their belief at that point in time, they believed that only God could heal leprosy. Only God could heal it. Because rabbis and religious leaders and all the rest of it, they were frightened to death to go near it because it was contagious. It was infectious. It could be something that was passed on, but it was mainly contagious. And he says to him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The Lord is always willing. But here is this man. Here is this man who has been ostracized for his own community. We don't know for how long. But leprosy, when I read it up, in those days... Once you got it, once it started to actually show on the outside, the ulcerations, etc., it could be nine brutal years of your whole body literally falling to pieces before you actually died. It was a terrible, terrible disease. And he says, Lord, if you are willing, nobody else is willing. That, that's the context of this. Nobody else is willing, but if you're willing, you can make me clean. It was always considered to be a dirty disease and horrible. And so the man's action asking for a cleansing. The Lord is always willing. That's something that we have to remember. The Lord is always willing. But we have to wait for his timing. This was this man's time. He came to Jesus and he said, Yahweh, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me well. You can make me clean. He knew who Jesus was. Many may not have known who Jesus was, but he knew who he was. He knew he was God in action, God incarnate. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man at verse 3. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Nobody would have touched this man, and yet here was Jesus took out his hand and touched him. It's almost today... Like walking up and putting your hand on an Ebola victim. That's the sort of that's the sort of nature of the thing. In those days it was maybe leprosy, today it's Ebola. Can you imagine somebody in their right mind walking up to somebody who is falling to pieces with Ebola, with blood running out of every orifice in their body, and putting their hand on them and saying, In the name of Jesus be healed. It takes you would think has Jesus been foolhardy here? Has he been silly? If we saw somebody doing that, we would think, silly. And yet, immediately, the man was healed. An unbelievable act of compassion. I don't know how long this man had gone without a touch. Nobody would come near him. Nobody would touch him. And suddenly this saviour comes and just puts his hand on him. And I wonder if the man withdrew, thinking, you shouldn't be putting your hand on me. But his hand was on him. And that was it. He was healed. And that would speak volumes to this crowd. Because they believed that only God could heal leprosy. And here was this Jesus. Immediately put his hand on this man. He was cleansed. In the Middle Ages, in this country and in Europe, in the early days of the Roman Catholic Church, when a man had leprosy or a woman had leprosy, they used to take them into the, into the church and read a funeral mass over them because they considered them dead. That, that was it. Once you had leprosy, 
Forget it. There was no way back for you. And in some measure, this is what this man was treated like. He was being treated by his community as a dead man walking. There was just no way back for him. And that's how we should be with others. That touch of compassion in Christ. And I'll tell you this. Irrespective of most of you will probably notice that when I pray for people, I put a hand on them somewhere. Because I think it's important that there is a touch of compassion, that, you know, there is a, a bond that's between you as you pray for that person and with that person. And I'm always astonished that the compassionate touch can accomplish so much. Many people don't remember what you prayed for them, but the fact that you just sat there and put an arm around them was enough. And that's basically what Jesus was doing with this guy. The only difference was that this guy just, he was rejoicing. He recognised in himself that something really miraculous had happened. And so did the crowd. And then Jesus at verse 4 said to him, See that you don't tell anyone. But go show and see yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, I can just picture this crowd. The crowd, they may have been stunned into silence immediately this guy was healed. How did they know he was healed? If he had all these bits on him or bits off him. You know, I remember, I believe he wasn't just healed, he was made whole. And that was how they recognised that he was healed. That he was made whole. This was a leper who had been made whole. And if you think about the story in the Gospels, when the ten lepers came to Jesus, and he said, go and show yourself to the priest. And as they went their way, they were healed. And only one came back. And Jesus said, where are the other nine? He says, I don't know where the other nine is, Lord, but I just want to thank you for what you have done for me. And Jesus said to him, your faith has made you whole. In every sense of the word, physical, emotional, spiritual, nothing is impossible to God. Nothing is impossible. And so we find this man, <laughs> don't tell anybody. <laughs> By the way, see, see five minutes ago I was a leper. I mean, these are the kind of guys you're looking for for the, the ministry nights, for the testimony nights, aren't they? Like, Will you come and give us your testimony about how Jesus healed your leprosy? And I mean, amazing. I mean, can you imagine Lazarus, you know, in the tomb for four days. You want to come to our meeting, Lazarus, and tell everybody. And you know, there would still be people who didn't believe. No matter how you told them. Why did Jesus not want me to tell anyone? Because, you know, they were looking for a Messiah to come. And if they saw what Jesus had done, if he spread it abroad... It almost happened at one point in time where they wanted to make him king because they recognised that he was the Messiah. But they were wanting to make him king for the wrong reasons. They wanted him to come riding on a white horse with a sword and get rid of the Romans. It was nothing to do with the, the spiritual side of things. But the other Gospels tell us that this guy just went and blabbed it everywhere anyway. You know, just to, how, could you, how could you keep that within yourself? What a joy it must have been to this man. I just came to this guy, put his hand on me, he says, I'm willing to be clean, and that was it. You know, go show yourself to the priest as a testimony. <coughs> Leviticus 14 tells us, and you can read it for yourself, there's a whole rigmarole as to what you have to do to prove that you don't have leprosy. 
In fact, if the guy had gone to the priest, which I'm sure he did, the first thing the priest would ask is, you, 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 what? you were a leper and you've been healed? They would have to blow the dust off the Leviticus 14 scroll because it had never been used before. Nobody could ever have told you that someone had been healed of leprosy. There was a lot of sacrifices to be offered, but basically, when it came down to it, they took two pigeons. This was really for the cleansing of the leprosy. They took two pigeons and a bit of hyssop and a bit of sandalwood and they, they cut the throat of one of the pigeons and drained its blood into a bowl and they dipped the other pigeon in it and then they set it free. And that was the, that was the sign. And of course, you know, that's the, the sign of a man being saved from sin that one pigeon sheds its blood for another and the other one's dipped in the blood and set free, you know, and that's really that's out of Leviticus 14 the Jews were doing that and really didn't know what they were doing they recognised it for God, this is what God told us to do and God did tell them to do it but they didn't understand what it was that they were actually doing they were showing that, that although leprosy was, a, was a, a symbol of sin it could be got rid of you dipped the pigeon in it and you let it go and you flew like a bird and off you went. And so that bit passed and the people are still following along with Jesus and they're coming back down into Capernaum where Jesus was, was living at the time we're told and if you look through the Gospels you'll get that. And when Jesus had entered Capernaum a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Now, if you look at the account in Luke, it says that there were, there were leaders of the synagogue came and all the rest of it. And there's no actually any specific mention that the centurion came in Luke's gospel. But again, I wouldn't expect the centurion to turn up with his helmet and his sword and everything on. I mean, the guy came anonymously, but he came under the circumstance that that he was actually being quite good to the Jews. It tells us in Luke's Gospel that he'd built a synagogue and that he'd put up money for certain houses, etc. And so, the Jewish leaders who'd come with him to Jesus had said to Jesus, this man deserves that you help him because he's given us money and built a synagogue. But he said, he said to him, Lord, again the same word, kurios in the Greek, Yahweh, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. It says a lot for this man, this centurion. He had a slave, basically, who was lying sick at home. Now, people who had slaves, particularly the Romans, they had, they, they had the, the attitude of life or death over these people. They didn't care. I mean, if a servant disobeyed you, you just stuck a knife in him, threw him away and bought another one. That was basically the bottom line. That was the deterrent not to be disobedient to your masters. Because if you were, they could quite legally kill you. And here was a man, a centurion in the Roman army, who wanted his servant to be healed. It wasn't compassion for himself, it was compassion for someone else. And Jesus said to him, at verse 7, shall I come and heal him? And the whole context of that is, am I to come and heal him? And the centurion, in some measure, had asked Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus had said, and the crowd would understand this, because for a Jew to enter a Gentile house was unclean. And Jesus had said to him, 
do you want me to come to your house and heal your servant? That was basically what he was asking. And the centurion knew that here was a man, maybe he'd seen the leper being healed, here was a man who put his hand on lepers. Would there be any problem in him coming into a, a Gentile house? The centurion replied to him, and he said, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. So the centurion, in some measure, he was showing a wee bit of compassion towards Jesus. He didn't want to make Jesus unpopular with the crowd. So he said, you don't need to come. I'm not asking you to come to my house, because I know what it would cost you to come into my house. But Jesus said, do you want me to come? No. Just say the word. Your word's good enough. We'll stand in your word. And this centurion, he had an amazing faith. Just say the word. And this again was the church of Christ. This was the church of Christ for a distance. And the centurion says to him at verse 9, For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. The man had total authority. He knew what authority was and he recognised authority when he saw it. It only needed a word. He was a centurion in the Roman army. The Roman army was divided into legions. And there were typically 6,000 men in a legion. Now that's a big group of men. And that was divided into what they called 10 cohorts. He's 600 men in each cohort. And then there was six centuries within the cohort. But the backbone was the man who was chosen to lead the hundreds, the centurion. These were guys of, of upright character. These were guys who were just absolutely to the T would carry out the orders that they were given. There was nobody, there was nobody would put them off when they were given an order. If you want to do a wee study, there's probably about seven centurions mentioned in the New Testament. And all of them, in a particularly good light, or most of them anyway. Remember the guy that stood at Jesus' cross when he, when he looked up at him, the centurion who was in charge. And as Jesus died, he cried out in a loud voice, Father, it's finished. I mean, I've said this to you before, nobody on a cross cries out in a loud voice. They're hung on a cross, they're... Their, <clears throat> their arms are maybe 90-12 inches longer than they should be because of the weight of their own body as all the bones are disjointed they're held in an exhale position <coughs> excuse me so they can't get a breath if they need a breath they have to push in their feet push themselves up to get a breath and then the agony in their feet and their legs is such that they have to let themselves go and down they go again and this constant trying to get breath into your body that's how you die. You die of suffocation. You don't die of the nails in your hands. You die of suffocation on a cross. And usually, normally, always, when a man died on a cross, he would slump forward. <clears throat> and he'd have no more energy to get himself up. And he would just hang there, unable to take a breath. He would die. But when Christ died on a cross, he cried out in a loud voice, Father, it's finished. And the centurion looked at him. He'd never seen anything like it in his life. And he said, surely this was the Son of God. So these centurions were people who were of high integrity. Some of them were fairly brutal, but they had, a, they had some sort of moral compass by which they walked. And when Jesus heard this, verse 10, 
He was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as the man said, what if you've got no teeth? He says, teeth will be supplied. <laughs> so here at this point in time, in some measure, Jesus berates the Jews. Israel as a country, as such, didn't exist. Nobody spoke about Israel. Just the same as in Jesus' day, nobody spoke about Palestine. It's a myth. Israel didn't exist at this time. There was Galilee, there was Judea, there was Samaria. And down south of that was all part of the desert. It was the Negev and down into Saudi Arabia and these places. They were all part of, of the Roman, the Roman uh, grouping. They were all part of the Roman Empire. This piece called Syria-Judea or Judea-Syria or whatever they wanted to call it. The headquarters were in Damascus. And the headquarters for the army were up in Caesarea, up on the coast. And so when Jesus says, I have not found anyone in Israel... So what is he talking about? Israel per se doesn't exist as a country. He's talking about the children of Israel. The people. I have not found faith like this in all of Israel. So he berates the Jews in some measure. Here's a, this centurion who has, who has no faith in God at all. He probably worships his ancestors and little wooden gods. But he come to me and he said, You don't even need to come into my house, Jesus. Just say the word. I know what it is to give a word to someone and I don't even look back to see if it's done properly. I know it will be done because I too am a man under authority. I tell you, says Jesus, they'll come from the east and the west. Now this was, and still is, the belief of the Jews and the belief of the church as well, that there'll be a great feast. We, we recognise it as the marriage supper of the Lamb. But at this point in time, the Jews recognised it as the Messianic feast. And they thought, wrongly, that only they were going. That they would come to this feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and, and it would be all hunky-dory and they would, be the, they would be the chosen people. They would be the saved people from the earth. And Jesus said to them, they'll come from everywhere, from all nations. And the subjects of the kingdom of God will be thrown outside. So he's telling the Jews that you might not get in. Your ticket might not be booked for the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It might not be booked for the Messianic feast. There is a way to God and there's only one way to God. Look at me. I'm the guy that puts the hands on the lepers. I'm the guy that can say a word and a servant's healed. Do you not recognize me for who I am? This in some measure could be what he's referring to by the people or some of the people who come at the last day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? He'll say, well, away from me, I never knew you. And in some measure, you know, if Jesus came back tomorrow, the Jews would be stunned because the fact that they had missed their Messiah, it would, they would mourn and they would weep. But they would accept Jesus and they would mourn for him that they'd pierced. Then Jesus said to the centurion at verse 13, and go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. So we always ask ourselves, can a healing occur over a distance? Nothing's impossible to God. 
Did Jesus need to touch the, the leper? No. Did Jesus actually need to speak to the leper? No. He could have thought it and it would have happened. He didn't need to do anything, but he wanted to do it because he wanted to show the people how they should be treating each other. That he could put a hand in a leper and no get leprosy. Indeed, instead of getting leprosy, he healed leprosy. And when Jesus came into Peter's house at verse 14, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. Now, we've seen the leper being healed in front of thousands. We've seen the, the, the servant of the centurion being healed over a distance. In other words, there would only be two or three people in the centurion's house who would see the servant being healed Thousands knew about it, but they didn't see it. And now we get to this bit here, a very intimate place here. Jesus is not in the business of playing to the crowd. He's in the business of dealing with people's hearts and souls. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. When fever's mentioned in the time of Jesus, and I looked at this for a few of the historians there, there was a couple of different types of fever that were all referred to as just a fever or the fever. But they were pretty fatal at the end of the day. One of them was called Malta fever. And it was, it was a waterborne thing that in some measure was a, was a type of typhoid. But it wasn't just quite as, as destructive as typhoid. But left untreated. And treatment was difficult, but left untreated over a number of years, the person would probably just die. They would become worn down by the disease and die. But the other big one, and this is probably the one that Peter's mother-in-law had, was malaria. Malaria was big time in Galilee and, and, and Judea and Samaria at that time. Where the Jordan River enters the Sea of Galilee and where it leaves the Sea of Galilee to, to flow down into the Dead Sea, those areas at this point in time were really quite swampy. And with the warm climate and the fact that it was way below sea level, it was ideal breeding conditions for the malarial mosquito. And so it would appear that Peter's mother had something fairly serious. She just didn't have the cold or the flu. This was a fairly serious disease she had. And if something hadn't been done about it, she would have died. So when we see this fever mentioned, remember that it's, it's not just a, some silly wee fever that we're, we're suffering from. Doreen and I saw the same thing in India. A lot of malaria in India. When I told you this before, but when I was speaking at one of the churches, and I had an interpreter there. And I said, you know, if anybody would like prayer, just as I said this morning, would you like to come forward? The whole church came forward. Everybody. There was hundreds of them. And I had to get another two or three guys to pray. And another, the guys couldn't pray with the women. There was this kind of, you know, so the women had to pray with the women. But invariably, when I got somebody in front of me and I said to my interpreter, so what's the problem? He's got a fever. He's got a fever. And I thought, you know, this is, these people, although they might be immune to some of the waterborne diseases and stuff that, that would probably knock us for six, the deli bellies, etc. But these people were sick. A lot of them were sick. A lot of them had a fever. They were walking around, but they weren't well. And some of the guys would come up and go, 
And that, you know, fever and sore head. And it wasn't just the fact that they had some sort of mild cold. It was malaria. It was dengue fever. It was West Nile fever. It was something that was mosquito-borne that they had contracted. And so it was the time in Jesus as well. And when he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in the bed with fever, he touched her hand and the fever left her. Now how many witnessed it? Maybe nobody. Maybe Jesus just walked in, touched the woman's hand and said, just, you're, you're, you're healed. Or maybe, just as it says here, he touched her hand, said nothing, and the fever left her. Just because we pray over people for healing, doesn't make any difference to God. You can stand there in silence. You can stand there beside them and just ask God to heal them in your head. You can stand there beside them and put a hand on them. I tend to like the idea of putting a hand on someone because that's what Jesus did a lot of the time. The hand on this guy, the hand on this woman. But here she was healed. And when evening came, no, sorry, he touched her hand and she got up and began to wait on him. And that's the amazing thing about this when she was healed and when she was raised up to do something she served the Lord she didn't go running around the town telling people that she'd been healed she got up and she made Jesus a meal and she entertained the guests and that was something that probably she'd never been able to do for such a long long time and so Jesus once again shows it the miracle in front of thousands the miracle that he did that thousands couldn't see and hear this intimate miracle he just walked into the house, looked at the woman, put his hand in her hand, and she got up. It's almost unbelievable. In fact, many wouldn't believe it. So when evening came, we'll just finish this. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now many people say to me, you know, we're always talking about these evil spirits in the time of Jesus and, you know, a lot is just, we know it nowadays as being illnesses and all the rest of it. No, we don't. In the time of Jesus, believe me, a lot of the Jews and the Gentiles that lived in the land, and I've researched this, they were really heavy into magic. They were into all sorts of occult practices, all sorts of demon worship. And if it's any... If you open yourself up to that, you're going to end up, just like if you open yourself up to influenza or malaria, you're going to end up with influenza or malaria. If you open yourself up to this, you're going to end up with a demon. And then there were many people in those days who were demon-possessed. When evening came, the only thing I could say here is that if you read this, the story in the two or three Gospels that, it's, that it appears in, it would appear that this might have been a Sabbath that this, all this happened. And you weren't allowed to heal on the Sabbath. So that was another bad point for Jesus. But when evening came, it would appear it was a Sabbath. And the people would bring it because the Sabbath day ended maybe six o'clock at night approximately. So after six o'clock at night, it wasn't the Sabbath anymore. So the people came in the evening and, and, and literally surrounded Jesus. And here he was, you know, he was up that mountain all day teaching them. He was down in Capernaum healing them and blessing them. And here they are, they've turned up at night. They just couldn't believe that they had this amongst them. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. 
And then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So there's this whole idea of people being emotionally involved with Jesus, seeing all these miracles occurring. And this guy who was a teacher, a scribe of the Jews, he said, Teacher, wherever you go, I'll follow you. The touch of Christ in a man's life. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, he wasn't putting this man off following him. What he was saying is, count the cost, son. This is going to cost you something. And it will cost you and I something as well. It might not cost us our bed or whatever, but it will cost us something. It's co- over the years it's cost me quite a number of friendships. People that I thought were friends and now think I'm weird. Maybe I'm weird, I don't know. <laughs> You know, Jesus might not have been penniless at this time, but he was certainly homeless. He'd know where he lay his head. He'd know where they could see was his. And that was what the disciples were being called to. And another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What a thing to say about a guy. You know, if his father was dead, you even see it today in the Middle East. If his father was dead, he'd been buried that day. His father wasn't dead. Let me go and bury my father. What he was saying is, let me go back to my own house and when my father's dead and all the property's settled out and everything's allocated as it should be, I'll come and follow you. It could be 40 years. That's exactly what he was saying. And you can find it even in modern cultures in the Middle East. You know, people will say, yeah, I can't come with me just now because first I have to bury my father and it's not a case that you know we're waiting for the day that the guy's dead because they were putting the grave on the same day It's it's an excuse it's a reason I want to get things sorted out in the world before I come with you and Jesus said come with me and I'll sort things out for you let the dead bury the dead The excuse that many offer for not following Jesus, I've got reasons why I can't become a Christian. My husband wouldn't like it. My daughter wouldn't like it. My father and my mother might tell me to get out of the house, as they did with Dan McVicker. There's all sorts of reasons. This man's reason was that he wanted to bury his father. He wanted to make sure everything was set up first. Jesus wanted to make sure that these two guys weren't just making some sort of emotional response here. And that's what we get sometimes when we preach Christ and Him crucified. We get people say, I'll follow you Jesus, I'll follow you. And then next week they're gone. Jesus asks us to count the cost. The Christian walk is not easy. If you're doing it right or trying to do it right, guys, it's not easy. And I want to encourage you in that. If you think it's too hard, you need to hang in. You need to hold into Christ even more. Because it's not easy. The Christian walk is difficult. People have said to me many times, Oh, Christianity is just a crutch. I say, well, so what's your crutch? I say, I'm, at least I'm resting on the rock that doesn't roll. You know, it's a, And many give up because it's too hard. They don't want to go the narrow way. They want to go the broad way. When we get there, when we get to that point where, Lord, this is too hard for me, this is too difficult for me, we need that touch with Jesus. Just the same as the leper needed. That touch with Jesus was enough. I can't wait to see that guy in heaven. 
I can't believe that he didn't get saved. <laughs> I mean, it was just an amazing thing. And Peter's mother-in-law. And of course, when we talk about Peter's mother-in-law, it, it kind of lays away the fable of the Roman Catholic Church that priests have to be, have to be uh, celibate and unmarried. When this guy whom they claim to be the first pope, and they, and they revere him as the first pope, he was a married man. It was obvious he was a married man. And probably had children as well. So we don't want to put ourselves in the place where we're following the rules of men. We don't want to put ourselves in the place where, where we disregard the cost of following Jesus. It's going to cost you something. But you know what? When you get there on that last day, you're going to be rewarded with so much that you never thought possible. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived that which God has prepared for those that love him. And that's what you're going to get. Everything that was ever in creation, we are co-heirs of. Co-heirs with Christ. It's unbelievable. So we need to keep that in mind. When we get to that point where discouragement becomes a real problem, we hang into Jesus and say, Lord, remind me of the promises you made. Touch me and heal me in my unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you and praise you for your goodness, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your word, Lord. Amazing things that you did. And you're still doing, Lord. And there are many today who would deny the power of the Holy Spirit in a man's life, Lord. And yet, Lord, we know that it's only through your Holy Spirit that we can keep going, Lord. That we know the beginning for the end. So, Father, encourage us today. Build us up in your holy love. Help us to be a people that honour you and bless you in all things. Lord, take us for this place with a little bit more of the knowledge of you, Lord, than we had when we came in. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.